Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag Your Mind Good evening everyone, I'm Rick Walker, welcome back to the Maverick News Channel Hello Maverick family, hello new viewers from everywhere this is the first day of 2024. And we're banned on our main YouTube channel again. What a great way to start the new year. It seems only fitting. I guess they didn't like what we were broadcasting last night. So, channel on a suspension again. So I'm going to ask everybody to please consider subscribing on Rumble if you haven't already. Please consider doing that. And we do have two other YouTube channels that carry this content. If you can subscribe over there, that would be fantastic too. I do miss the before times. That's partly what we'll talk about tonight. In search of the before times. What does 2024 hold in store for us? I don't know. I can't be sure who can, who can, who has a crystal ball that's absolutely accurate. I don't know. I do know what I would like. I'd like my country back. At least the country that I think I had. The country that I remember. And maybe the country that I remember with some improvements. Maybe together we can map a course back to that mythical place that I thought was reality, if it ever existed at all. Hard to know if it was ever there, 
especially given the way our history is being rewritten, has been rewritten, continues to be rewritten. And it's hard to know where we're going when we have these conflicts, these wars that are really just part of one really big global war, a third world war that rages tonight, even as we speak. I'll be right back. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals, defenders of individual rights and freedoms. Credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow, maybe too late, too late, too late, too late. Maverick News. The world is watching. Okay, I'm just getting a few things queued up here. We'll dig into today's top news stories and a broader conversation connected to all of today's events right after this. We are Mavericks. We say no to the Trudeau and Biden New World Order. And to bugs. Because bugs are creepy and gross. And people should not eat bugs. Maverick News. The world is watching. Okay, so tonight, 
We do have that uh, series of powerful, powerful earthquakes off central Japan's west coast. Homes were damaged there. A big fire. And we have tsunami warnings. Tens of thousands left without power. Residents seeking higher ground. The Japan Meteorological Agency says that the Noto region on the western side of Japan's main island was hit by a rapid series of earthquakes, starting with a 5.7 magnitude earthquake at about 4 p.m. local time, their time. In total, we've seen about 20 earthquakes. After the first one, uh, the area was hit by another 7.6 magnitude quake. Came just four minutes later, then a 6.1 magnitude at about uh, 4.18. And then just minutes later, a 4.5 magnitude. Minutes later, like six minutes later, a 4.6. And then just three minutes later, a 4.8. Excuse me. Then tsunami waves about four feet high hit Ishiwaka Prefecture's Wajima port about an hour after the quakes struck. And uh, there was a major tsunami warning issued immediately, which uh, alerted residents that there could be waves up to 16 feet high. Later, the tsunami warning was downgraded, but officials are still warning people against going home with waves of up to 10 feet, possibly anticipated. Government uh, stressing that people in coastal areas need to get away from the oncoming tsunami. I don't know if you folks remember uh, any anything like this in the past, but I certainly do. And uh, it can be devastating when there's an earthquake and then the uh, the resulting shift under the ocean floor, the tremor causes a massive wave to sweep into shore. And of course, what happens is the water at first pulls away from the shore. People often get confused and will even walk out sometimes into the area where the water has pulled back, sometimes leaving fish and all kinds of things exposed, leaving the ocean floor exposed. And then when people least expect it, the water comes rushing back as a gigantic wave, a deadly, gigantic tsunami. So the danger is uh, still real there, and uh, we're continuing to watch that. Officials say hazardous tsunami waves from this earthquake or series of quakes are possible within 300 kilometers of the epicenter along the coasts of Japan. The Hawaii-based Pacific Tsunami Warning Center says that while 
Japan, the Japan Meteorological Agency warned the waves, waves rather, could be up to five meters high. Power companies operating nuclear plants in that region say they're checking for any irregularities, but so far they have not reported any problems, and the government seems to be confident that uh, though the integrity of those nuclear power plants remains intact. So as I say, we'll continue to monitor that. We do have a a map here showing the epicenter right there. And you can see the big red dot marks the spot where those quakes were centered. Very dangerous. Also dangerous, what is going on in the Red Sea, where attacks continue. And I am receiving reports tonight that uh, the United States is pulling back some ships from the Red Sea. But I am not 100% sure how accurate those reports are. I do know that the U.S. Navy was uh, able to sink three Houthi rebel boats attacking merchant ships in the Red Sea. U.S. Navy helicopters returned fire and sank three small boats carrying Houthi militants. This... um, as U.S. warships were responding to a distress call from a merchant vessel. A Maersk container ship, the Singapore-flagged Hangzhou, issued a distress call about 6.30 a.m., U.S. Central Command said in a statement. The merchant vessel said, four small boats were attacking it. The, uh, The small boats originated from areas in Yemen that are controlled by the Houthi and fired crews served in small arms weapons at the Maersk Hangzhou, getting to within 20 meters of the vessel. And Central Command in their statement said that there was an attempt made to, to, an attempt made to board the vessel. Helicopters from two U.S. ships, the USS Eisenhower and the USS Gravely, responded and issued verbal calls to the small boats. The Houthi say that uh, they lost 10 group members after U.S. forces fired on their vessels. They are referring to the engagement as dangerous behavior that will have, in their words, quote, negative repercussions. In their statement, the Houthi rebels say that the American enemy bears the consequences of this crime and its repercussions. The group also says that it will not hesitate to confront any American aggression against Yemen and renewed its advice to all countries not to be drawn into the American plans, as they put it, aimed at igniting the conflict in the Red Sea. 
Also, a statement from the National Security Council saying that the U.S. does not seek to escalate the conflict. That coming from John Kirby on Good Morning America. That clearly everything is escalating in that part of the world, and that's all related, of course, to the conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza and the West Bank, and now in Lebanon. And we are seeing tonight that Israel has struck back because Hezbollah from Lebanon had launched attacks against Israel, and now Israel responding with this in Lebanon. That's in southern Lebanon. And we are also seeing calls tonight from some UK ships to, um, to China asking for them to assist in keeping the peace in the Red Sea as well. I don't know how successful those kinds of overtures will be. And we're seeing the Conflict in Ukraine continued to drag on as well as we enter the second winter there of war. Justin Trudeau has issued a new statement. And when we come back, we'll tell you all about that. The New World Order. Government overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream media lies. Now more than ever. Independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com. That's freedomreporters.com. Maverick News. The antivirus program for your mind.
Maverick News. The world is watching. Exile The Knights of Malta Maverick News Join us. The world is watching. Okay, I'm back and I just have some notes here. Um, in Ukraine, Russia, of course, struck back pretty hard this week against Ukraine. And uh, they have now since issued an explanation for their string of missile strikes targeting Ukrainian targets and senior military personnel on Belgorod yesterday, yesterday, Saturday, sorry, losing track of my days. More than 20 civilians were killed, but the Russian defense ministry says that their real targets were decision-making centers for the Ukrainian military and senior military officials. It noted that a high-precision missile strike on the building formerly housing the Kharkov Palace Hotel eliminated representatives, and this is um, directly from the Kremlin, representatives of the main intelligence directorate and the armed forces of Ukraine who were directly involved in the planning and execution of the what they're calling terrorist attack in Belgorod. Uh, the building also housed up to 200 foreign mercenaries. Hang on here just a second. The building also housed up to 200 foreign mercenaries, it says here, who are gearing up for terrorist raids into Russian territory. Um, other strikes hit uh, the building of Ukraine Security Services Security Service Bureau, the SBU, and a temporary deployment area of Ukrainian nationalists. Quote, representatives of the SBU leadership, foreign mercenaries, and fighters of the Kraken unit who were directly preparing sabotage on Russian territory have been taken out. So they're saying they were very specifically targeting command centers and there was substantial damage done. Many soldiers lost, killed, and among the casualties, a number of senior military officials from the Ukrainian military. So that is the statement coming back from the Russian Ministry of Defense. So just uh, notes here again from our correspondent over there. The Ukrainian armed forces lost up to 200 soldiers. 
and one tank on December 31st. Also reported from the Russian Ministry of Defense, the Russian Armed Forces hit a drone production plant. Russian Air Defense shut down a Su-27 aircraft from the Ukrainian Armed Forces over the Black Sea. In addition, a Ukrainian sabotage and reconnaissance group was destroyed in an area in the DPR. The Ukrainian armed forces lost up to 110 military personnel in the South Donetsk direction in the past 24 to 48 hours. I think that's right. Based on when this was sent, yes. The Russian armed forces also hit Ukrainian airfields hosting storm shadow missile carriers. And during the day, Russian air defense forces intercepted 16 HIMARS shells, six Uragan shells, and 46 Ukrainian armed forces drones, including three over Crimea and three sea-based drones of Sevastopol. The Russian armed forces in the Donetsk direction killed more than 260 Ukrainian service personnel. Minister of Defense of the Russian Federation uh, says also four fuel depots for military equipment of the armed forces of Ukraine in the areas of Odessa and the village of Konstantinovka, Nikolaev region were hit as well. So that's the latest update that we have from that region. And the battle rages on as we head into a second winter of war in Ukraine. And as all that is going on, Justin Trudeau has uh, issued a statement today. Let me show you what he had to say. So, of course, he remains committed, he says, to to Ukraine in this conflict. And that means get out your wallets, folks. Because the cash will continue to flow from the Canadian government, which means from us. Here's Justin Trudeau's account on Twitter, X. He says uh, right here, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine enters its second winter, Ukrainians can count on Canada's support for as long as it takes. That's the message I shared on the phone with Zelensky this morning. Oh, boy. And so it continues. Even as it seems very apparent that uh, Ukraine is on its, is pushed back onto its heels. So I don't know. It's just, <laughs> this was not supposed to last this long, right? So who knows? 
who knows? As all that is going on, we're seeing also um, renewed calls from some European countries to continue with support for the war effort to support Ukraine and to, to increase it. So if that happens, we could be in for a, you know, a continuing, extended, protracted war just when it looks like Russia is on the verge maybe of a major breakthrough and bringing the their special military operation, as they call it, to a conclusion. Um, maybe, maybe there will be more pushback than we had anticipated. We're also seeing that uh, the Ukrainians are using drones in a unique way now, uh, receiving reports tonight that they have drones now equipped with some sort of a missile, and they're using those against ships able to do that. So another new development in the way that drone technology is changing the way wars are fought. And this apparently is a completely new technique. I don't know a lot about how it's being done, but that is the word we're getting is that this is a, a new way of approaching attacks um, in a marine setting. So that's a side note. And, you know, in 2024, I don't know how much weirder things can possibly get than what we've gone through, but things are getting weird. Um, here's a report from NBC News tonight. And just look at some of the new laws on the U.S. side that are coming into effect here. Right off the top. New laws for 2024, gender-neutral toy aisles, retail pet stores, and contraceptive access. It says here, states across the country will ring in the new year with laws set to take effect throughout 2024 about issues like gun violence, book bans, and gender-neutral toy sections. A growing number of states will require financial literacy courses in high schools while a handful of others will add access to contraceptives by eliminating the need for physician prescriptions. So I guess you'll be able to just walk in and without a prescription, get birth control pills. It says here state legislatures are bracing for another year of proposals approaching the country's most divisive issues. So gender neutral toy aisles, this is the top, the top new law in terms of uh, news interest. Starting in January, California, where else? Of course, it's California. Will require major retailers in the state to include gender-neutral toy sections in their stores. The new sections won't be allowed to be marketed to just boys or girls, but rather must include a reasonable selection of toys that could be marketed to children of either sex. The law won't require the stores to eliminate their boy or girl-focused toy sections, but rather add to the toy sections to include ones that would reasonably apply to children of any gender. 
Ah, the law passed by the legislature and signed by Governor Gavin Newsom back in 2021 is aimed specifically at retailers with at least 500 employees across their state locations, which excludes smaller stores. Retailers will be fined $250 for not following the law, followed by $500 fines for repeat offenses. Assemblymember Evan Lowe, a key sponsor of the bill, said in a statement that the measure would make it easier to compare similar items for sale at large retailers without reinforcing gender stereotypes that harm vulnerable children. Save the children with gender-neutral toys. You know, because people can't make their own decisions. You have to have a law like that, I guess, to tell people how to behave and what to think. Illinois' anti-book ban law is coming into effect as well. It'll be the first state to enforce a law to outlaw book bans. Hmm. So is that a free speech thing then? The law requires the state librarian and library staff members to adopt the American Library Association's Library Bill of Rights statewide. So this document goes on and says that reading materials, quote, should not be prescribed or removed because of partisan or personal disapproval. And if they don't adopt these new rules, public libraries will not be eligible for state grants. And New York is cracking down on puppy mills with new legislation. Michigan is going to get new gun laws. Michigan's legislature did pass a package of legislation to reduce, well, they say it's going to reduce gun violence, but I doubt it. Um, the package passed by the Democratic-controlled legislature, of course, largely along party lines, includes red flag laws, stricter background checks, safe gun storage requirements, and a ban on those convicted of domestic violence from buying, owning, or transporting firearms for eight years. So here's the governor, Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat, saying that the passage of the new laws honored those that have been lost with common sense gun violence prevention legislation supported by majority of Michiganders. And then they have this uh, financial literacy programming requirement coming to high schools in Georgia, Indiana, Minnesota, and West Virginia. So as long as the information they're sharing is of use and uh, on track and sound, I wouldn't. I would say that's probably not a bad thing. Um, there are a lot of things that people should be taught that are, haven't not been taught. Over-the-counter contraceptives. The Food and Drug Administration's decision in July to approve the first non-prescription oral contraceptive is expected to allow access to birth control to expand widely in 2024. Once the new drug Opil hits shelves. Meanwhile, states are also expanding access to prescription hormonal birth control 
by allowing pharmacists to prescribe such contraceptives rather than doctors. So 29 states have passed legislation since 2016, allowing pharmacists to prescribe hormonal birth control options without doctors with measures in Rhode Island and New Jersey set to go into effect in 2024. That's all expanding. Yeah, the birth control pill, man, that has changed our society in ways that people don't really think of too much. It's definitely changed life for women and it has changed the relationships, the, the dynamics of relationships between men and women without question. Yeah. So all that going on. And when I come back, I'll talk a little bit about uh, the before times. Sure do miss them. And I'll share my freedom journey, I guess, a little bit. Just uh, thoughts off the top of my head related to tonight's top news. Folks, so just uh, remind you know again we we're banned on our our main YouTube channel again tonight. So if you are watching, I'm just going to put um, a link here in this chat that will take you to one of our other YouTube channels. If you could, if you would consider subscribing over there, that would be fantastic. And I'll put it over here in the Rumble chat as well. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, what, um, this is sort of my thoughts about the before times. And then if we have time, we'll go to the phones tonight. And maybe you guys want to weigh in on that too and share your thoughts. Maybe talk a little bit about what you miss. You know, this being the first day of uh, 2024, we're looking ahead, but I think sometimes you have to look backward, look back and see where you, where we were, where we came from to understand where we're going, right? So there's a link to the, um, to the YouTube channel. 
And yeah, let me just uh, kind of flip over here to this other YouTube channel. A Brumble channel, rather. Not sure. Yeah, our numbers are down tonight. We're being really suppressed, so I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Let me just see what's going on here in the chat. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was going to talk a little bit about this last night. Didn't really get a chance to. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> everything has just maybe you can relate to this why am I sitting in this chair night after night after night after night for me this all started with the pandemic right so Everyone was scared. Government locked everybody down. It was infuriating. It was appalling what they did, the way they treated people. It was scary for everyone. And I was opposed to the government response from not day one, but second one. From the first second this became apparent, I was adamantly opposed to what the government was doing. And then there were protests in our community, and I was out there, and I was active, and uh, I was already disillusioned with the conservatives in Canada, the Conservative Party, for sure. I had migrated away from that because I felt they had, well, I didn't really migrate away from them. They migrated away from me. I didn't leave the party, per se. The party left me, like so many of you. And then the pandemic came, and it was like nobody was there exercising any kind of common sense. And it, they were... They'd flipped our entire world upside down. I was already unhappy with the wokeism, the, the identity politics, the rewriting of our history. And I, I just knew that I had to stand up to it. So, yeah, I was, I was out there protesting at the time with others and the there was the 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 last federal election and i got heavily involved with that as a former journalist you know i i had never really been much of a political activist always practicing journalism from a a place of neutrality trying to be neutral 
sort of in a semi-retired mode, um, I became more active politically. And then the, the freedom convoy came and I, and I knew that this YouTube channel that I had started years ago when YouTube was first, you know, coming online and people didn't really even understand what it was. I'd started a news channel and it never got traction because it was so early in the development of YouTube. There was no way to really make it viable. And I was still trying to navigate through and understand how it worked. And then Brendan and I um, were, were talking and we were like, how can we help with this convoy? Should we go to Ottawa? Should we, what, what can we do that's positive and constructive to help restore people's rights and freedoms in the face of what I can only describe as a government that was out of control and exercising extreme overreach? And we were concerned about the, the V thing, the V thing in the arm. And, you know, I never, I never, submitted myself to that for me it was a simple simple thing how could they possibly have tested something adequately in such a short period of time and the answer was clearly they hadn't everything else aside you can look at the numbers and the stats and the every you know that for me was just a no-brainer. No way was I going to get a thing here. Without some sort of responsibly conducted research, standardized testing over a reasonable amount of time in order to come up with truth true scientifically backed data to support safety and efficacy and uh there was no way so for me right from the beginning it was like no something's really seriously wrong and the masks oh yeah they really worked and the lockdowns ridiculous oh yeah they really worked worked to destroy the economy, transfer wealth in an unprecedented manner from small and medium-sized businesses to large ones. Worked well for that. Worked well at putting us deeper and deeper into debt. Worked for that. So when the convoy rolled in, Brendan and I, we, we agreed. Let's resurrect that channel and get it going. And we will draw attention to everything going on there and try to provide as much transparency through live streaming as we can to keep things honest in the face of censorship and propaganda and outright lying, especially at the time by mainstream media. And you know, the media, the mainstream media, really started, in my view, to turn and lie when Trump came down that escalator. 
for me, that, that was the moment when things really went off the rails because journalists that I had known when I had been working in the mainstream media for a long time, it was clear to me even back then that they were just outright lying about Donald Trump. And I remember phoning up a longtime acquaintance, colleague, who worked for a newspaper, and I said to her, why would you lie, just outright lie, in the article you just wrote about Donald Trump? And to my surprise, she didn't even deny that she had lied. And I won't share her name because she still works in the mainstream media. But she said, because when it comes to Donald Trump, the gloves are off. Well, I'm sorry, but now I can't believe anything that she writes because she lied and admitted to me that she had done it. It wasn't even like, oh, well, that's just the way I see things, or I have a different take on it. No, it was just obviously she had lied. She didn't care. She thought that the end justified the means, which was to prevent him from becoming president. And then he went on to become president. And then we saw what we came, what came after. And now we're into a situation where, as we head into this election cycle, this election year, regardless of what the outcome is, I don't know if this question of who will be the next president is even resolvable. Because there's been so much damage done. The public has lost trust in institutions and in democracy itself and in the electoral process in the United States and in Canada as well. Where people in Canada too, they get confused and misdirected, misinformed by people who also don't really know how things work to the point where I, every, all the time when I, we, we talk about this on this program, people still think that federal, a lot of people think that federally Canada uses the voting machines and the Canada does not. Canada uses paper ballots for federal elections. They use machines in provinces for provincial elections in many cases, but federally still paper ballots. That being said, I did see an article tonight, uh, earlier today, actually, not an article, it was just a, an opinion. I guess it was a, an opinion piece. Um, and I didn't read the whole thing, but it was like 10 things that you can do to prevent Justin Trudeau from being reelected. And I didn't read the whole thing, but one thing you can do is get involved, if not directly in politics, if you're worried about the electoral process and the integrity of it, you can get a job with Elections Canada working at a poll. And you probably should. You'll get paid. You can be there to make sure that it's done in an honest manner. You're not there to be an activist. You're there, there to perform, perform a service and uh, and to get paid for it at the same time. To get a temporary job out of it, the pay is okay. And uh, they train you. And if you're worried about how those ballots are handled, you'll be the one handling the ballots. Just make sure you 
do it honestly, with integrity. I worked as a poll supervisor, a multi-poll supervisor, uh, in a previous election. It was a, an interesting job. I learned a lot. And you can do it too, to keep the system working properly and make sure there's honesty and uh, transparency there. So that's one thing you can do to make sure that it's all done right. Wouldn't even cost you anything. You'd, you'd make some money. Um, but as I look at everything going on tonight, you know, and, and here we are on the first day of 2024, I think back to the way things were. I think about my kids, as I'm sure a lot of you guys do as well. And I yearn for yesteryear, for the way things used to be. I think when you're a kid, you don't remember everything entirely clearly. You're a kid, so you're 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 sheltered, right? Protected from some information. Your parents protect you because you're not an adult. But there was something magical about Canada and the United States. And I'm in a unique place here because I grew up in southern Ontario, southwestern Ontario, right, you know, not far from the U.S. border. So I'm very Americanized, especially for a Canadian. I acknowledge that. So my perspective is kind of twofold. I feel like I'm as American as many Americans, maybe more American. And, uh, I'm certainly Canadian. And I remember what it was like, but I don't think my kids do. I don't think they have an appreciation for the way things were, how free things were. We took it for granted. Born in the mid-60s, I was. Also a time of turmoil. Um... Vietnam, a lot of social unrest. Heck, I grew up not too far from Detroit, you know, a couple hours from Detroit. And uh, there was a lot of social unrest back in those days. There was a lot of pain at times because of the economic downturns and the uh, the ongoing struggles of the auto industry, which hit peaks and valleys. But the thing I most remember was the freedom, the sense of freedom, and most of all, the idea that anything and everything was possible. There was pride still. National pride. Pride in being an American. Pride in being a Canadian. Even as Pierre Trudeau came on the scene with Trudeau mania. Even as we went through Watergate. 
I was born after the JFK assassination. And yet even with that, even as America lost more of its innocence, Canadians, Americans, they, there was still national pride. Because I would, I remember waking up early one morning to watch an Apollo launch on our old black and white television. All we had was bunny ears on top of the old console TV, black and white. That's all we had in the 1960s, early 70s. I couldn't, I, I was so young. I just remember getting up and turning on the TV to watch this launch. It was so exciting. I mean, literally at that moment, the sky was no longer the limit. And I sat there on the floor, inches from the old black and white TV. And back in those days, we only had six channels maybe to watch. Were we getting truth from those six channels? Seemed like it. Seemed like there was more integrity. Certainly times were not as divisive as they are now. Or maybe I just don't remember it that way. Maybe maybe they were as divisive and I just was naive in my childhood. The man, the sky was no longer the limit. So as much as we were having trouble, well, there was also a whole lot to celebrate at the time. We were going to the moon, baby. JFK's dream was a reality. So much for Sputnik. The uh, space race captivated my attention and imagination. And then we had Star Trek that came on the scene. So much hope and adventure. Lost in space and great old TV shows. Freedom, man. It was all there. And it was, it, it felt free. It, it felt like we were doing great things because we were doing great things. We were achieving great things. Where did it all go? I, I so miss it. I remember learning to ride a bicycle. An old piece of crap. A hand-me-down, beaten up with rotten rubber for tires and sissy bar and, a, and the big old bent handlebars like a chopper. <laughs> it was way too big for me. Couldn't reach the ground. I had to start off on a curb so I could just touch the, the, the curb because I couldn't touch the ground because the seat wasn't adjusted properly. Wouldn't wouldn't go down low enough. But I was determined to ride that darn thing, and I did. And I felt free, and I was young. And I didn't know any better, I guess, but, man, things sure felt free. And I remember getting chicken pox. And everybody's so afraid of getting chicken pox now and getting afraid of getting this and getting that and getting this. 
And how did I get chicken pox? Because the kid down the street, who was my friend, had chicken pox and had been shut in in his bedroom and escaped. <laughs> he ran out of the house, came down to visit me and exposed me. And I got chicken pox. No big deal. I got over it. I didn't need a jabberoony thing, a rooney. I got over it. And I didn't wear a helmet when I was riding a bike either. And I didn't have knee pads or any equipment. Nobody even thought about it. For better or for worse. But I was free. Pretty free. At least in my mind. And I didn't know what I was going to become. I just, I just remembered, you know, like everything seemed okay. And, and we never had a lot. We weren't rich. We weren't privileged. You know, my, uh, my dad, he was just a chewing gum salesman. Yeah. So he made his living. Honest. He was the candy man. Had free samples of candy, popular with all the kids on the block. And he worked hard. And I idolized him because he got up every morning, went to work, did his thing. And he always dressed in a suit because he had pride in his appearance. And uh, everybody was kind of like back that back then, as I recall. There were problems, problems with attitude, problems with prejudice. There were problems, but I remember things being a whole lot better than worse. And then as time went on, you know, I, uh, I became a little more aware of things. You know, I remember um, as I got old enough, we'd moved and, we had a little tiny semi-detached house that was just a rental. And then we moved into a, a small semi-detached house that my parents were finally able to scrape enough money together to get a down payment on. And we moved into that in a different part of town and we were moving on up. Things seemed to be okay. And I don't remember really any complaining. Not really. Cause it was always, optimism it was like things were going to get better it was like if you work hard do it right anything is possible and people were driving around in cool cars and going where they wanted to go doing what they wanted to do and there were there were bad things that happened i remember because there was freedom and so as I got into, you know, my, my early teens, I remember kids being killed in a car accident from our school because they had been out on a joyride drinking, no seat belts, speeding. I didn't really know them well, but the, all of them in the car were killed. And it was things like that, that, alarmed people and, and made people shake their heads. And it was things like that that made people willing 
to, to give up some of their freedom. And that's when we saw seatbelt laws, pushes for seatbelt laws and tougher drinking and driving measures come in, you know, um, it was controversial because it's like, well, who should say if I have to wear a seatbelt and who should say, you know, if I'm allowed to smoke in a, in a restaurant, am I infringing on someone else's rights? And these were complicated issues to be sure. And the, the debates raged on and on for years and years, but slowly over time, they chipped away and chipped away Again, rightly or wrongly. And we became less free because we were able to give up a lot of our freedom for safety and security. And I remember that those who did not have enough found support through the community through their churches, through charitable organizations, less so through social welfare. But over time, government played a bigger and bigger and bigger role in every aspect of our lives. And people continued to give up freedom as they sought safety and security through things like socialized health care, seatbelt laws, photo radar, laws preventing people from smoking in public places. And it continued on and on and on. And we'd give a little bit more and give a little bit more and give a little bit more. And people continue to give and give. But still, even during those times as a teen, I remember I still felt very, very free. And I remember, you know, the rhetoric about Russia and the Cold War and all of these things. And how in the old Soviet Union, you know, um, the, the message was that there was not as much freedom and there was oppression and there was clear evidence of that. And it was undeniable. I mean, we were, we were much freer because as a teenager getting my driver's license, that was freedom, man. I'll tell you. Yeah, you had to get a license, but once you had your license and you were permitted to participate fully in society in that way, man, I could go anywhere I wanted to go. My bicycle, that was freedom because I could pedal my way to all kinds of places further and further away from home. The, the car, that, that was freedom. That was part of the American and Canadian dream. And I remember going to Detroit and crossing the border. And all you had to do was just show your driver's license. The border, talk about an open border. 
Hi, how you doing today? Oh, I'm just fine. Uh, where are you going? Uh, just over to Detroit to just uh, check it out. Okay, uh, got some ID. Yeah, here's my driver's license. Okay, have a great day. That was it. <laughs> now you have to have a passport. The checks are much more thorough. The lineups are longer. All kinds of concerns about terrorism. But we had basically the world's longest undefended border. Back and forth, Canadians and Americans went back and forth. And I had, we had relatives, we have relatives over in, in Michigan and uh, they come visit us. We go visit them. And eventually, you know, later on in my career, I ended up living in Windsor right on the Detroit Windsor border. And I used to go over to Detroit like every weekend. Love Detroit. There's my driver's license. Thanks. Have a nice day. Freedom. I remember going to the beach with my brother. He had a Chevy Nova SS 350 V8. Port Stanley, Ontario. Lake Erie. Rumble down the road, go to the beach. He was a lot older than me. And I looked up to him. Go to the beach. It felt free. Was it free? Was it freer? Maybe we just believed it was. It sure seemed like it was freer. Maybe because we only had six channels, later 13. Maybe. Maybe we were just being fed a line. Didn't feel like it, though. It just felt like, and I think it's there's clear evidence that this chipped away and chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. And just, and Pierre Elliott Trudeau and the liberals came in. And I remember my uncle, staunchly opposed to Pierre Elliott Trudeau. But I lived, I grew up so much of my life with Trudeau as prime minister. And I remember the day he resigned and I thought, wow, that's, that's terrible. Who's going to be the prime minister? Because I really hadn't known as a kid much of anything else. It was alarming. It was uncomfortable because there was this now lack of continuity. So for a time he wasn't prime minister, but then he came back for a short time as well. And he came back. But I wasn't aware enough to even understand, you know, the politics, the economics, the everything that went on at that at, in those days. That I didn't understand why my uncle was so adamantly opposed to, to Pierre Elliott Trudeau and the liberals who clearly Pierre Trudeau had communist ideology right here in this heart. And they chipped away and they chipped away and they chipped away. And we went further and further and further and further and further to the left, further and further and further to socialism. And our rights and our freedoms were diminished because as the state became larger, we as citizens became smaller, more collectivized. And we gave up more and more ground because we wanted to become we wanted safety and security. Or so we thought. 
But through it all, there was the United States, and it was just still this pride and, and, and the country pushing forward in the face of adversity and missteps and stupidity at times and bad foreign policy born from international conflicts that required complex responses but were met with simplistic initiatives quite often that plunged the nation into war around the world where at the time it may have seemed like the right thing to do to people maybe even the politicians who as corrupt as they were maybe they thought they were doing the right things as well but miscalculations at best and corrupt behavior at worst eroding tarnishing american the american image abroad maybe or to to a point of irrepair and we pay the price for that today And then in the 1970s, early in the 1970s, I first heard the term politically correct or became aware of it when I was sitting at home and some sort of magazine had been delivered to the house. And it had the political correctness. What is it was the headline on the front cover of this magazine. And it had a man and a woman with tape over their mouths. I'd never heard the term before. It was something kind of new, and it really kind of scared me. I read the article, and it was not really well written because I think the author didn't really fully understand political correctness because it was something that was emerging on the political scene. But it was like, I could tell it was important, and people were not really aware. And that was in the, in the 70s. And then I started to ask questions about it, and no one was giving me satisfactory answers. I was at that age trying to have conversations about political correctness with adults who were oblivious and had really, really at the time no interest in speaking to me about it because they didn't understand it, so they just dismissed it and didn't pay any attention. And I was thinking, this is really important. I should, What is this about? But time went on, and we began to see more and more and more of this in our society. I became alarmed and awake to a lot of what was then going on with the government, even as a teenager. And even in elementary school, I was just engaged with, with politics on some level. I remember, and this is backtracking a little bit, but our elementary school used to have competitions among the students. We were divided into teams. They called them color houses. And it was supposed to be a constructive competition. Anyway, as you would get points for your team when you did good deeds or tasks, and or if you could do well academically, there was a question, it was always a quiz in the mornings, school-wide over the public address system. One day, it was, what is the value of the Canadian dollar today? 
I was the only kid in the school who could answer the question. I knew it to the decimal point. So I submitted the answer and scored the points for our team. And the next morning they announced the winner. My name was announced over the PA and every kid in the class looks at me like I had three heads <laughs> because I was dialed in to economics and politics. I felt like a, an outcast. <laughs> anyway. But it was okay because I, I think that, you know, that curiosity served me well. I even had a subscription to the Financial Post. And as a kid, I'd save all the copies. And that was kind of weird. My parents didn't know what to do with me. I'm sure of that. And I'd go downtown when I got older. Um, even before I could drive, I'd take the city bus. And I'd go downtown every weekend to the movies and to the used bookstore. There was a used bookstore downtown called City Lights. Leo, you know who I'm talking about, Mouth of the South. Um, it was owned by a young guy named Mark Emery. And that place was fascinating to me. It was just filled with old books and magazines and nostalgic things. And that is where I would go before going to the movies at a repertory cinema where they would play art films, documentaries, some mainstream stuff, um, old things, weird eclectic movies. Sometimes I'd go to the mainstream theaters too. But I'd go to that bookstore. That's where I got copy the communist manifesto and i read that but that's also where i would buy economics textbooks just to read them from the, from the university that was my light reading because the university students in london would take their textbooks there when they were done with them and sell them to the used bookstore and i i'd buy them when I was in high school. I'd read them. And that's where I learned about Adam Smith. I got my first taste of that stuff. That, that was a pivotal moment for me. Adam Smith, the invisible hand. Freedom. I began to understand freedom because of Adam Smith, economist. And that made sense to me. Limited government, just let the people decide, leave the power with the people, let the people determine their own destiny. Let the market decide, the marketplace, free markets, free markets capitalism if you will i don't i didn't need pierre trudeau and social programs to chart my destiny i wanted control of that for myself i did not want to be restricted by government because the sky was not the limit as far as i was concerned i wanted to see the usa in my chevrolet and the whole damn world 
It was actually a Pontiac. I learned how to drive on a Plymouth. <laughs> and that was cool. Thanks, Mom and Dad, for letting me learn on your Plymouth Fury. Thank you, Mom. Yeah, it was my mom who taught me how to drive, not my dad. Patient with me she was. She gave me freedom. I miss it so much. It was Americana Canadiana style. That was my existence. Maybe it wasn't a great place for everybody, but it's pretty darn good for me. And I want I want that for everybody, man. I want I want my I wish my kids could have experienced that more in the way that I did, you know, there's still some of it out there. It's still there. I can, I can feel it. I can smell it. I can sometimes even taste it. The freedom, you know, going to the fall fair, the drive-in, there's still drive-ins out there. Going where you want to go when you want to go. Nobody tracking you. Not really. No cell phones. Things made sense. Monetization of YouTube. Right. Music industry. How are they going to monetize that now? It's everything's digitized, man. Back then it was like vinyl records cassette tapes, television, free TV, off air. Later, cable came along, but it was all done with advertising. It was all free, except for your cable fee. But you could still watch with an antenna. Still can today, actually. You just don't get all the specialty channels. Um, but things just made sense. It, you know, it made sense. And I don't remember being any worse off. I mean, you had to wait a long time for the for a letter to arrive. Now you can just send an email. So things are faster, I think, but maybe not better. It was just freedom. And you weren't allowed to open anybody's mail. If you if opening somebody's mail was a federal offense, but boy, I don't know. Is the government snooping on your email now? Are they tracking everything you look at, watch? The only way that they knew what the television ratings were at the time was they had to put a special box on people's TVs to monitor and people had to agree to it. But now they know everything that's going on, man. They, they have your cookies and they track you all over the Internet. Privacy? What the hell is that? People are worried about 15-minute cities. Hey, man, I'm telling you, it's already here. Just, you got your phone with you? They've got you because you are the product that they are selling. 
And then a good friend of mine called me over the new year. We had a conversation. You know, he's retired. He need, needed some dental work. He's on a limited income. And he said uh, he was really excited because the government was providing free dental. Well, not completely free. To get all his teeth, some, some work done, he it was like 100 bucks or something. The total bill was what it was coming to. And he was pumped about it. And I understand. But I also see how it's a trap. And how did we get there? Well, you know, you can credit the NDP for that, I guess. If you're happy about getting your government dental, that's fine. But, uh, you know, right now there are a lot of dentists around. And if I wanted an appointment with a dentist in my town, I could get one probably within maybe a day. I could get service. But man, you're trying to get general medical care in a system that has been highly socialized, not, not dental. Dental's different here. Um, they've destroyed the accessibility to overall medical care here. Long waiting lists. Anyway. And then the pand when the pandemic came, you only had one place to go for your health care. No choice. Socialized healthcare system, concept of universality applied. You can't jump the queue. You're not allowed. Doctors are compelled to provide service based on what the government standard is. Second opinion, what's that? You get generic care, uniform care, uniform opinion across the board. No choice because the choice is taken away in a socialized healthcare setting. You are not a consumer. You're just a, well, I guess you are just a consumer, but you don't have really any rights in a socialized system. Because just like if you're a union member, um, everything is done in a collectivized manner. The union negotiates on your behalf. You as an individual do not have a say, per se, in contract negotiations, nor do you have rights as an individual in a collectivized healthcare system because everybody gets the same. In a free market system, if you didn't like what that doctor was doing, you just go down the street to a different doctor. But any doctors trying to provide any kind of privatized healthcare with an alternative treatment Oh, they were reprimanded and they were prevented from providing service because we have a collectivized healthcare system. And there was a lot of that going on in the United States, but not to the degree that we had it here in Canada. So as much as I'm happy for my friend getting his free dental care, we're going to pay for that with a more erosion of our freedoms. Less choice over time. 
as it becomes more socialized, you will, you will see fewer and fewer choices, fewer and fewer clinics, more and more rationing of care. Because as they make it free, demand will go up. And as demand goes up, they will only have one way to regulate price, and that is to restrict supply. Supply and demand. Demand goes up. They have to cut the supply in order to regulate their costs overall. Which actually drives the cost per visit way up too. But we shall see. Just saying I miss the old times. I remember going to see my old doctor, Dr. Milner. It was pretty pretty good care. Old school, almost like a country doc, you know. Family doctor. I don't even have a family doctor now. And I remember things were so much different. I grew up, you know, born in the 60s, into the 70s, into the 80s. And I remember behind our house, a giant field, undeveloped. There was, there were, you know, kind of some dugout areas. And in the winter, they would fill with water and freeze. And we'd go back there and skate and shoot the puck around and just have some fun back there. Today, it's all built up with residential over there and townhouses and some uh, light industrial. And there's a giant shopping mall down at the other end. And our old house is still there. But the city has, you know, grown and grown and grown and grown over time. And now we're getting massive immigration and I don't even really recognize the city anymore in the way that it was, it feels so different. It feels unsafe. And the downtown, I own a business there, as I've said, you know, on previous nights. And uh, that was a number of years ago. I would never open a business in the downtown of a city like that again because they've deteriorated to the point of despair. Now, even here in this town where I'm living, this smaller town, everything is, I don't know, it's just, it's just on the wrong track. It's terrible. I mean, it's still a good town. Still a lot of good people here, and it's a good place to live. But you can, t I mean, what I say when it's terrible, it's terrible what's happening. Because I'm seeing homelessness. Even here, where when I moved here, there was no homeless that were visible. And any that was there, it was minimal. And there was help. But now, drug problems, and people living in tents, and... People like on street corners begging. And this is not a really big city. And people in my own neighborhood here in the suburbs where I see them sometimes at night. Wandering the street when I'm out walking my dog over by the super mailbox. And uh, the other day I was walking along and someone clearly 
had left um, like a, 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 a backpack kind of a thing with all their personal belongings in it. And it was just laying on someone's front lawn over near those community mailboxes. And it was just clear to me that something bad must have happened to someone who was homeless. And they left, uh, you know, some clothes and personal effects there. Just not something had happened. I didn't know what to do. There wasn't anything I could do. Concerned because on the other side of the neighborhood, there are some hotels that have been converted into sort of like halfway houses for people transitioning from prison or rehabilitation centers to try to get them back into society. But they're really just holding places for people who have social problems. And they've turned them into long-term residences for people getting out of prison or with social issues. And I don't even know exactly who all is worried, who lives there, but that's what they are now. They're not hotels anymore. They've converted them into these places. And for people coming in from out of town, uh, migrants, immigrants, new Canadians with no place to go. So they go there. And those are some of the people that I see wandering around the neighborhood now and no fault of their own and no issue with it really, but it's discouraging to see it because it's just, it doesn't seem like we're lifting people up. It's helping people exist. What happened to the sky, man, where it was no longer the limit. Now it's like these folks are barely able to exist. And I look at what's going on with, the economy and Justin Trudeau and the money printing and the massive inflation and the erosion of my parents who are on a very fixed income, you know, over the last few years, losing so much of their ability to even afford groceries and the necessities of life. My dad in his 90s still works. In his 90s. In order to afford the things that he wants in his retirement. He has to work. He likes what he does. Doesn't sell chewing gum anymore. Unbelievable is stamina. What a generation. Resilient. Oh, I wonder if I'll make it that far. I somehow doubt it. But what a time. What a, wow. And it feels like the government, Trudeau, it's like he's just doing, you know what it is, man? It's like they're doing it on purpose. I, I really believe that they are. Yeah. Stay with me. I'm going to talk about that when we come back.
Maverick News. The world is watching. The New World Order Government Overreach The Great Reset Mainstream Media Lies Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now, at FreedomReporters.com That's FreedomReporters.com Maverick News The Antivirus Program For Your Mind So, you know, it's like they really seem to want to tear things down in order to build back better. It makes no sense to me. And yet this is what I think they have in their minds. It's like I think they people like Justin Trudeau, the progressives, the the neoliberal wokesters, the identity politics types, they they just see the negative in everything. Everything that we've had, they hate. So they want to destroy it. And they see the destruction as an economic opportunity, and they see the rebuilding as an economic opportunity. In much the way that they would view any kind of public works project, you know, there's um, in, in Keynesian economics, they those who's, who, who embrace that idea in, in times of economic downturn. The idea is that you would increase money printing, increase government spending. To build things like roads, public infrastructure, or even just put people to work digging a hole and then filling it back in. As long as they, you put them to work and you pay them and it makes people productive in some way, just to, to, to make them busy and give them a job. And so it's quite apparent that what they want to do is just what they have done, what they're in the process of doing is taking even an industry like the auto industry. You have to destroy it first. And then reap the economic benefits of rebuilding it. Because you have people just busy, 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 rebuild, rebuild, rebuild. But in a new way, in their way. Get rid of all those gasoline-powered cars. Get rid of those foundries and the and uh, the, uh, the the petrochemical and to get rid of it all. And they have done a very effective job of destroying the very things were built up over many decades since the beginning and the dawn of the industrial revolution. It's not market driven right now. You know, it's, it's craziness what they are doing because they're not letting the people decide. It's all government driven, central economic planning, government controlled in conjunction with, in partnership with, you know, the big 
corporations, the, the international multinational corporations, all of these big corporations are now. It's not like General Motors is just an American company. They are worldwide. And yet we're bailed out by the U.S. taxpayers and Canadian taxpayers when they went bankrupt. And that was the pivotal moment when the government was able to finally exert and take control of GM and put so much influence and sway in there with their bailout because those that bailout came with conditions. No freedom for GM, no freedom for the auto industry anymore. You will do as we say as a government, even as an, a, a corporate entity, we control you. You will produce electric cars. But in order to do that, they have to destroy all of the factories, retool them all, gut them, or build new stuff and prohibit the sale of the product that was coming from those factories, those internal combustion engine powered vehicles. You will not buy those anymore. We're going to start to ration them. Within two years, you won't be able to buy. You only There are going to be so many of those vehicles on the market. Only allowed to sell so many of them. And the auto, each auto company is only allowed to sell a certain number. Completely controlled market. Not driven by the marketplace at all. If So if you want to buy a gasoline-powered car in a couple of years... You're probably not going to be able to get it. And if you want one, you're going to be on a waiting list, which is what you get in any kind of a government-controlled socialist economy. Now, you probably will be able to buy an electric car if you can afford it. Even with all the government subsidies going into those, they're still more expensive and they don't last as long. And we don't need to get into all that again tonight. But man, where's the freedom in any of that? This is a government-driven thing. Not market-driven, not driven by the people. It's not what people want. It's what people are being told they're going to get. We all better wake up. Therein lies the big problem. Because Justin Trudeau and his climate change and environment ministers, Stephen Gibo and Christian Freeland, they think they know better than you. You're not smart enough to make decisions on your own. They know better. We're just the unwashed masses. I disagree. I think you do know what's good for you, and I think you do have the ability to make your own decisions, and you should be allowed to determine your own destiny, and you should have the freedom to do it, and you should have the freedom of mobility. And in a big country like this, you need a darn car to go from coast to coast to coast and into the United States, and I wish that we had the freedom to just cross the border and flash a driver's license in order to do it, but we don't have that anymore. We can still go. We still have some freedom. It's just that things are much more restrictive now. And we are being thrust into a new reality where everything is being tracked. Your movements, what you eat, what you watch, what you think. And not just tracked, but you are being manipulated. You are being coerced. You are being fed 
a steady diet of propaganda and information all designed to mold your mind from various places. And it's confusing because we are living in an information era. And that's not really freedom either. I don't know. If we're ever going to get it back. But I remember. I remember. I want that feeling back, you know. I want I want to feel like where I live is a great place because it is. It was. And a lot of the information we're being fed now from I guarantee you not just sources within we're, we're being fed information now from political forces that are working to destroy not just the economy, but our very way of life. We've been infiltrated. We are being, and not just from people, from some people within the government, from other people working from outside the actual institutions, but we are being fed information all the time. And it's all being designed to make us feel Guilty is being done to make us feel like there's no hope. And even to hate ourselves. I don't buy it. Our history is being rewritten. It has been rewritten. And a lot of the people who are trying to teach us history now. I've been watching, especially over the last couple of days. I'm hearing a lot of cliches and a lot of scary old tropes and messages being recycled in an opportunistic way. And uh, even people who are out there sometimes telling us what appears to be the truth are not necessarily being completely honest with us because they're trying to mislead us. I heard the word the other day, you know, somebody said, um, I don't remember who it was, but I've heard this a few times. Um, there was a reference made to the convoy, the freedom convoy in Ottawa, the protest. Somebody said it turned, unfortunately, it was, it turned into an occupation. I disagree. And I think we have to be very careful about using that word, occupation. It's being thrown around a lot. I don't know if you've noticed. Like so many other things in these political narratives that are being spun up and fed to us over and over and over and over and over again, there are certain key words and certain, uh, certain like branding almost or marketing messages that are being fed to us because it's it's key and it's integral, it's important for these, I would call them even political enemies of the state to, um, to assert these ideas through the use of language. 
One of those words that I'm hearing thrown around a lot right now is occupation, occupiers, settlers. It's important to them that that word be used because if you adopt it, if you use that word, you are already defeated. Just by using the word and, and, and acknowledging that it applies to you in any way. And that word has been around for a while and you can find its roots in roots. I don't know if it really originated the, the use of the word here, but it was used in the upside down manner through the Occupy movement, which is, was, continues to be a neoliberal woke movement anti-capitalist, certainly socialist, possibly communistic, anti-Wall Street, some valid arguments in there, um, some not in my view, but that word occupy was used for a reason. It was used to, and continues to be used, to normalize its use, make people think about occupation, because as soon as you are able to apply the idea of an occupation to a population or a demographic even, then that delegitimizes that group and strips them of their rights. You see, the freedom convoy, let me be very clear about this. The freedom convoy protest was not an occupation. It was a strike. The freedom convoy protest was primarily a, a citizen-led protest demonstration within the framework of what I would characterize as a strike, because at the center of it, the main thing was the truckers and their protest surrounding mandates. It was very legitimate, in my view, for them to protest in the way that they did with their trucks because where is their workplace? It is on the road. It is at border crossings. It is entirely appropriate to protest where the, the government resides, which is on Parliament Hill. So it's entirely appropriate to take those trucks down there, in my view, at, at, with that level of protest, when you've got that level of government overreach and strike. Now, there are obviously limits within the terms of public safety and, um, and so on. Um, was it an absolute occupation? I don't think so. I think it's more, it was more like a strike. In, in, very much uh, similar to what a union would do uh, through a collective protest and collective bargaining and exercising the right to strike and picketing. Uh, the entrance to a factory. 
Where else is a trucker going to go when it's the government that is preventing them from working? Parliament Hill, that's my view. The political forces that were opposed to the Freedom Convoy, they used the word occupation, and I took note of it immediately. Why? Because it ties into the, their political ideology and their rewriting of history, which is that Canada is a illegitimate government formed from the initiatives of colonialism that you, any Europeans who have settled here are just that settlers and occupiers. And I would go further than that and say that that kind of neoliberal woke socialist, and I would say maybe even in some cases, a certain strain of communism views that as um, let me gather my thought here so I get it straight. It is in their mind, it's it's that is what forms the basis of an illegitimate occupation. You have no business being here. The government of Canada has no right to exist. The country has no right to exist. You have no rights as a settler. You are just an occupier, a settler on land that does not belong to you. And it dismisses the treaties that were signed and remain in place with First Nations that created nations within a nation in Canada. Because if you delegitimize the existence of the government itself, then those treaties hold no force or effect. They're not legitimate either. And you go back to square one, which is what some people want. Be very, very careful about that. I would say. Do you really want to renegotiate all of that from the past? What do treaties do? Treaties are a way of preventing war. Treaties prevent further conflict. Treaties bring peace. Tear them up. Find out what happens. You might not like the result. You might not like what fills the vacuum in the absence of the existence of the government that I would say is very legitimate. Be very careful. And Canadians in general need to understand that those treaties do not apply only to First Nations. They apply to Canadians as well, to both sides. We form the other side of that agreement through our government. And so when I hear a phrase like, it's unfortunate, but the Freedom Convoy turned uh, did unfortunately turn into an occupation, I, I do kind of disagree. Yes, 
It was disruptive. It was peaceful, though. And it was more akin to a labor dispute, a, a citizen's strike, if you will, with the picket line on the doorstep of government. And even at border crossings, in some cases, which was, again, an appropriate place to be doing it. And I'm sorry if it shut down your, your bridge for a while, but there were have been many incidents through history where that has happened. And it's always been a dilemma, right? I'm not really in favor of a lot of ineffective and, um, how shall I put it, malicious sort of behavior to just kind of disrupt things and cause mayhem and and hurt communities. I don't want to see that. But I certainly understand protest that unfolded in the way that it did. Now, I'm, I know as well that on either side of that, there are some probably some bad actors and people in there not acting in entirely good faith. But overall, what a successful protest that was. And man, did it wake up a lot of people. So no, I didn't view it as an occupation at all. I don't view it that way now. I never will. And I hope you don't either, because as soon as you use that word occupation, now you're an occupier. Now you're on the other side of the law. You know, I think, I think that the law is um, a malleable thing. It's uh it's a, uh, to, to some degree, because there's the letter of the law and then there's the spirit of the law. And then there's also social contract and whether government is living up to its end of that social contract bargain with the people and whether they're really doing their job properly or not. And I would say in that particular case, the government had not lived up to its obligations under our uh, unwritten social contract, which is a real thing. If you look it up, it's a you know philosophical thing, but it's a real thing. The government of the day, Justin Trudeau and his liberals, and Jagmeet Singh and the NDP supporting them, they had lost the trust and the confidence of the Canadian people, a large portion of the Canadian public. Like it or not, that was the truth. And they responded in a way that was inappropriate because they saw it as an existential threat to their government. Because I have also no doubt that there was some truth to the claim that there were people in there that probably wanted to overthrow the government, but they never rose really to the surface. Not those people, not, not really. Of course, you're always going to get, you know, a few bugs attracted to a bright bulb, right? But overall, that protest was very peaceful. There was no evidence, really, of any serious, serious wrongdoing. The claims otherwise were largely exaggerated or even outright fabricated in many cases. And they were there for quite a while, but finally, you know, things got cleaned up. But they were not an occupying force. It wasn't an, an occupation in that sense. And all Justin Trudeau had to do is really come out and talk to people and help to diffuse things and provide some real leadership. And that just didn't happen.
And to be sure, over time, I've seen government not respond properly or effectively to citizens' concerns on a number of occasions through history. When I was a kid, when I got into my teens, as working as a journalist over the years, you know, many examples of that where the government just just could not get their act together. And where they've done sinister, terrible things to people, whether it's MK Ultra mind control experiments or chopping down every ash tree between Lake Erie and Lake St. Clair here in Ontario to create a sort of firewall to prevent the emerald ash borer from spreading and as an invasive species, giving property owners no choice in the matter. They just came in and chopped all those trees down on their properties, whether they liked it or not, using the authority under the Canadian Food Inspection Agency to do it. And that, to me, was heavy-handed and completely ineffective and another illustration of why government is so incredibly incompetent and at times overbearing to the point where they will just strip people of their rights. I had a taste of that and covered things like that. I've seen people's kids stripped from them because the government didn't really agree with their religious beliefs over the decades from time to time. It happens, and I don't agree with any of that. So I know that there are problems within our system, and the government at times has too much power. But that is why we have to resist this march toward more collectivism, even as people complain about government. It blows my mind. I cannot understand the logic behind people who complain about ineffective... Uh, overbearing authoritarian government calling Justin Trudeau a tyrant and then turning around and embracing the idea of more socialism as the answer, which is more government, even more government, which is a trap. We need less government. We need to strip the government of much of its authoritarian power. And unfortunately, folks, that means that you need to be in a position willing to accept more personal responsibility. That's the way it works. You can't go to the prime minister and say, I want free this and free that and free this and free that. And then not expect that the government is going to impose rules on you in order for you to participate in society in order to get all your free stuff. It's the way it works. And the economy is tanking. And we've seen this in history before as well. The 1930s. The dirty 30s. This time, I think they're doing it on purpose. Maybe they did it on purpose back then. To, I, I wasn't alive in the 1930s. I, I read my history, but I see that history is being re, is always being rewritten anymore. I, hard, hard to know what to believe. But at any time in history when there has been a serious economic downturn, you see political polarization take place because different political forces use that as an opportunity to galvanize support for their movements 
because people become desperate. That's what happened in the 1930s, especially in Germany. Great Depression came. Germany was in dire straits. War reparations from World War I being imposed on Germany. Massive inflation. The government of the day engaged in huge money printing. People were becoming impoverished. They had no hope. Hitler comes in, offers them what many people viewed to be a solution to the economic downturn, the economic suffering, a restoration of national pride. And he used massive government works projects like highway building, autobahn, turn things around, generate support, and you saw what happened. And overlaid into that, or woven through it, I guess, was the, um, the prejudice, the hatred, the darkness, the scapegoating. And I'm seeing exactly that happening right now, too, just in a slightly different way, because it's happening more in a once again, in a geopolitical way, and yet even as you look at how different countries are lining up with regard to this, it's in many ways almost a, a replay of the 1930s and what happened back then. And I think we need to be very careful. And the rhetoric that I'm hearing, the, uh, the cliches, the old same old story sort of updated with... Uh, contemporary ideas it is actually a you know a slight revisionist kind of history that people are being fed right now in order to lead them down some of the same paths that we went down even back in the 1930s leading into the 1940s which plunged us into a second world war this time a third world war and i'm afraid I'm very afraid because I don't see freedom in any of it. We're told that these people over here are fighting for freedom and these people think they're fighting for freedom and everybody's fighting for freedom, but I don't, I don't know what they think freedom is. You know, I've seen a lot of communist revolutions where they use the word freedom, freedom fighters, you know, people running around with AK-47s. I'll tell you this, you do not find freedom at the end of coercion, force. At the end of a gun. You might defend it, but you'll never create it. The bombings will continue until democracy improves. It doesn't work that way. That's the mistake the United States has made. When threatened, they've responded with force. And you don't get freedom through force. You don't force freedom on someone. You get the opposite. 
Israel fell into a trap. When they responded to the attack on October 7th, in the way that they did with massive force, resulting in so much death, huge mistake. You don't force freedom on people. Doesn't work. They've lost the war. At least it appears to, so far they've lost <laughs> because they, what they did was stupid. Emotional. And the rhetoric that is out there, everything. <laughs> We're being told that basically they deserved it. They did it to themselves. It's the same kind of thing that we hear here, isn't it? Israel's just an occupier. They have no right to exist. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Let's wipe them off the map. It's an illegitimate government. Just occupiers. And then you see, even over here in North America, the same kind of rhetoric being applied to the governments here, where I've even heard within the last week, people at conferences from the neoliberal wokester side. Saying the government of the United States has no right to exist. That Canada is just a colonial nation. That we're all just a bunch of occupiers. Well, talk like that just leads to conflict in my view. It's dangerous. The people embrace it. Self-flagellation. Self-destructive. And it dismisses the treaties, which are two-sided with the First Nations. And isn't it interesting to see how the conflict over there has a direct link to the political unrest over here coming together? And isn't it interesting that the left, the neoliberal wokesters and certain Marxists, certain strains of communism all weave together and seem to come full circle and converge with people on the other side of the political spectrum who are walking around carrying swastikas. Convergence. Because they're both collectivist ideologies. And more importantly, because they're anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, anti-American, and by extension, anti-Canadian. And if you subscribe to that, well, then I guess you can hate yourself. I don't know where you're going, but it seems to me we've got to find a solution, ways to live together, honor agreements, treaties, the political realities that were forged from our history that apply today. And we have to find a way forward in a constructive, productive, peaceful way. 
so we can coexist, which is what those First Nations treaties were really intended to do from the very beginning, if you take the time to read them. They're all about a framework, a foundation, an agreement allowing us to peacefully coexist. But that's not what I'm hearing out there. Not right now. I'm hearing a lot of political opportunists trying to sell us on ideas that will only lead to more conflict, and we need to be very careful. And I see people being martyred, and I talked about that the other night as well. We are dealing with religious ideology, in some cases religious extremism. We are dealing with terrorists, terrorist ideas. It's coming here. Make no mistake. In fact, I'm getting messages right now. Talking about incidents that people are wondering if they're even, they might be related to some sort of terrorist activity, which I cannot talk about here because I have no confirmation of any of this stuff tonight yet. So I need to wait until I find out what this is really all about. But there's fair to say a lot of public concern. And because of all of that, we have had to give up more of our freedom. That's why we have to take our shoes and belts off. And get searched at the airport in ways that we never used to. Why you can't take little mini bottles of shampoo onto a, an airplane anymore. Uh, maybe we never should have let them bring the seatbelt laws in. How many lives have been saved? Probably a lot. How much freedom have we lost? A lot. But the year 2000, we were supposed to have flying cars. We've got them. People are afraid of them. Some people. Other people want them. We've got flying cars. We have Star Trek communicators in our pockets. We have... All kinds of cool new technologies and also technologies that are being used to manipulate and control us. Things are better and they're worse. Things have advanced, but they've gone backwards. It's about how the stuff is used and applied. We're in a period of transition and as we get into this new year, 2024. Where's it all going? I'm not sure. I just know this. If you want freedom, you need to, we can't have as much government as we've had. We need to find ways to push back on government. We need to stop 
focusing on destruction and start focusing on building. Not to build back, just to build back better, which is a movement to first destroy and tear everything down because it's really coming from globalist, global collectivists who want to tear down capitalism, tear down free society, and impose the will of a one-world government over all of mankind in a collectivist way, where you don't really have property rights, where you're just seen as some sort of a tenant in your own world. It's it's not going to work. It doesn't work for me. I mean, it could work, I guess, if we were all treated like ants in an ant farm, which is kind of what they want, I guess. But not really. That's not living. That's just existing. I want freedom. I'm not an ant. I don't mean to scare you. It's not not about that. I just think that there is there's got to be a way forward here for us, folks, as we go into this new year, where we can push back, and we are pushing back, and we are, you know, winning some ground back. But this is going to be an ongoing, probably never-ending battle. And I think too, we need to recognize that this threat is not coming so much just from within our country. We do, in a democracy, have these various political forces in play all the time, and that the forces that seek to tear everything down are part of the political process and will always be there because we do have freedom. But we need to preserve, as far as I'm concerned, all the aspects of our society that are about freedom. Freedom of choice, freedom of religion, freedom uh, to vote. We need to preserve democracy, whether you believe in it or not. It's got to be there. What what else are you going to have? I don't believe in the system. It's uh, you can't vote your way out of this. Oh, yeah. Well, if you're not going to vote, then what are you going to do? What if you don't have voting anymore? Then what do you have? You have a dictatorship. Well, no, thank you. That's exactly what I'm trying to oppose. Trudeau's a dictator, but you're never going to vote our way out of it. So we need a dictatorship. What? No. Think rationally. There's a lot of doublespeak out there right now. That's also taking your freedom away. I want straight up explanations on things again. I want I want some truth and real transparency, and I don't want um, cloaked messages coming from political pundits and politicians and even online social media influencers posing as journalists when they're really just activists pushing a particular political agenda or narrative or even the interests of foreign governments. They're not really being honest with you, even as maybe they're sharing some truths because their true motivations are hidden.
I just want my country back and I want my freedom back. And even if it's just something that was in my head, even if it didn't exist before, then I want to make it. I want to create it again. I want what it was. And I don't, I know it wasn't perfect. What democracy ever would be perfect. There's no such thing as political perfection because in a democracy, it's messy. You always have different political forces, you know, pushing and pulling and not just, you know, this side versus that side. It's a cornucopia of political parties and forces and ideologies, shades of gray within them. And then who is it that actually comes to power and who is it that gets to bring in their policies? But we need to, need to keep working at it. We just, I just, I want to be able to wake up in the morning, go where I want to go, not worry about the government tracking the hell out of me or some giant company that is going to use my personal data against me. Um, I don't want to be coerced into taking a medical intervention that I don't agree with or don't want or don't feel is safe. I want to be responsible for me first and foremost, not be responsible for everyone around me. And what I mean by that is, you know, during the pandemic in particular, they flipped everything upside down where suddenly we, you as an individual, became responsible for all the other people around you. So they had to lock you down just in case you were sick. How dare you go outside or go out into the community? How dare you go out without a mask? You might make other people sick, even if you're not sick. But when they flip the logic upside down the way they do, then you become responsible for everyone else. But how can you possibly be responsible for everyone else? You can't control other people or what they do. You can only control what you do. And it's up to you to be responsible for you and me to be first and foremost responsible for me. I'm responsible for me. You're responsible for you. And if you choose to go out into the community and take the risk of exposing yourself to other people, then that's a choice that you make because that's a choice that you're making to live. How do you choose to live? What risks, <clears throat> what level of risk are you willing to live with? And the other people who are out there that you will meet in public, they're also making a decision to interact with other people and accept a certain amount of personal risk in order to live. Instead, the government turned it around and said, no, you have to stay home because we don't know if you're sick. So you better just stay, even if you're healthy, because you're responsible for everyone else. So how dare you put other people at risk? You don't have any rights. You're not allowed to live. You must stay locked down. And how dare you not get the thing in the arm? Then you're not going to, you don't, you don't have the right to live. I mean, live a life. 
And that is to say you couldn't get on a plane or a train or even a city bus. You couldn't go into a restaurant. I want to live. That was never the way it was before. This is the, That was the first time in history that we'd ever dealt with things in that manner. And where did those ideas come from? Directly from China. They were the first to impose those kinds of draconian restrictions and measures. Canada and the United States fell into line. Did the same thing. Why do you think that is? Because there's so much political influence here already through our institutions and even through infiltration into our government itself from a foreign political entity, another sovereign nation state exerting influence here. So that's what we got. And that's complicated. And I don't, who knows everything that really truly went on. Nobody really knows for sure everything that went on. But you can see the problems that we ran into, right? But it's about the ideology being employed. We can't allow that anymore. That's what we have to push back on. And we are. And I think people are more awake to it now. But we're in a very dangerous place. And I can only say this as I kind of try to wrap this thing up in a logical way. I miss the before times because I miss the optimism. I miss the national pride, not some sort of twisted ethno-nationalistic, fascistic, dark, sinister, scapegoating kind of national pride. I'm just talking about being proud of positive achievements, of technological achievements, of reaching for the stars and getting there for crying out loud and being proud of it saying right on humanity one small step for man one giant leap for mankind that's for all people today the moon landing's a hoax. It didn't even really happen. Our own government's responsible for all the bad things that always happen to happen, and it's all our own fault. And we don't even really want to live here, and everything's bad, and tear down all the statues. And then you complain about your government, or people complain and say, well, gee, what went wrong? Well, you bought into some of this claptrap, And instead of saying, yeah, some of that's not so great and that wasn't so good. But, you know, they've rewritten our damn history. They're, they continue to rewrite it. And a lot of what they're teaching us now is honestly just not true. It isn't. There's some truth and then there's the twisted part of the truth. And then there's this new, you know, new interpretation. Sorry, I don't buy it. 
You really want to dig into the history? We could do that. And I'm gonna not gonna to get too deep into some of this stuff tonight. Maybe another night we'll we'll I'll bring out some stuff and we'll read maybe some of the real like the nitty-gritty stuff that is like undeniable. The show that some of the neoliberal woke stuff that they're jamming down your throat just simply isn't true. It's very Orwellian. News speak. Starts with the rewriting of history. They have, if they control the government and they can control the narrative today and they can rewrite, if they control what, you know, the media today and our institutions, they can rewrite our past. By rewriting our history, they control the future. That's what they've been doing. And there are people still doing it on all, well, on many different political fronts. Be careful what you buy into. There's a lot of hatred out there right now, too. And it's easy to sell hate, anger. It's easy to scapegoat people or certain groups, especially when so many people are suffering. And you, we've seen political movements in the past fueled with hatred, animosity, fear. Don't fall into the trap. Don't fall into the trap. What else can I tell you? I can tell you, just in closing, that it's still out there. The promise of freedom. still out there we still have some I haven't torn it all down I want it back for everyone somehow we're going to get there to the fog of war through the mist of 2024. I'm going to be here with you. And we'll try to navigate through all of it. I'm going to try to help you get closer to the truth. So that we can all find our way back to freedom. Love you guys. 
Got a whole year ahead of us. I'll be back tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Catch you on the flip side. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.